Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Lear Keith is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out her first appearance in episode 67 of Boundless Body Radio. That episode has been one of our most downloaded and talked about episodes of all time. She was also hosted on episode 287, so also be sure to check out both of those episodes to discover Lear's journey to malnutrition through veganism. Lear is an American writer, radical feminist, food activist, and environmentalist. Lear is the author of the novels Conditions of War and Skylar Gabriel. Her nonfiction works include the highly acclaimed The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability, which we will be discussing today as we did on the first two episodes that we've hosted Lear on. She is the co-author with Derek Jensen and Eric McBay of Deep Green Resistance, Strategy to Save the Planet. She's also the editor of the Derek Jensen Reader, Writings on Environmental Revolution. Lear has been arrested six times and currently lives in Northern California with her lovely animal and plant friends. Lear Keith, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to Boundless Body Radio. Well, thanks for having me on again. It's always fun. Always fun to chat with you. We were talking offline. It sounds like we both had some pretty harsh winters this year. Um, yeah. Springtime, hopefully that sun is going to come out. Please, sun, please. <laughs> please, sun. <laughs> Uh, well, you never really seem to age. You always look great. You always have tons of energy Aww. for all the products you have, um, with all the projects you have, excuse me. So um, again, it's just always great to chat with you. Um, real quick, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, m- one of my favorite ice hockey terms is the term for talking shit with your buddies, which is called chirping. <laughs> So if you're chirping, it just means you're talking shit with your buddies mm-hmm. on the ice. And I like okay. the term and hockey players are very, very good at it. We're, we, we are, you know, we're mostly good with our teammates. We chirp our teammates way more than we chirp the other team. And the more personal and the deeper you dig to find like the, the really like old stuff or the stuff that really stings, it's like, it makes it so much better. All of that to say <laughs> a few weeks ago, one of our former guests, um, James Lehman tagged me in a post online that had a picture of him on his vegan diet and after his vegan diet and he was working out and the vegans found it and I can't, these guys are amazing at chirping. They will find stuff about you from years. They'll bring it up. They were accusing him of not being vegan enough or he didn't start at the right time and all of this stuff. And I, I tweeted back at them like, you guys, you are amazing at this. Do any of you play hockey? I would gladly take you on my team. It's vicious. Yeah. <laughs> it's really crazy. Well, I mean, it's, they're very ideologically bound and it's very threatening. The thing about being a vegan is that it's never just what you eat. It always becomes who you are. So you're not just somebody who eats a certain way. It becomes really core to your identity. So anything that threatens that even a tiny bit, it feels like it's threatening your very sense of self. And that's one of the problems with, you know, all kinds of fundamentalism is, you know, when it gets that deep that you, you, you just can't stay open to alternate information. So then you're just rigid, you know, you're just um, a fundamentalist. And I mean, that certainly happened to me when I was a vegan. So, uh, you know, humans are just capable of this. We can see the course of history and how often this has happened about all kinds of crazy things. Um, so we're definitely, you know, we're prone to it as humans. And it's always a good reminder not to get stuck in that, you know, as we move forward in our lives, that to always keep keep some open, some intellectual openness. Otherwise it's, it can be a very scary kind of rabbit hole, the silo that you get stuck in. Yeah. Wow. Well, I remember you telling us that you were grateful that you were a vegan at a time when soy products were not very much available. You're probably very glad that you were a vegan before Twitter came around. I, I just yeah, don't know right? why people are spending the time, like going back in history saying like, Oh, you were paleo in 2016 or you had eggs once on a Tuesday. I saw it on your feed. <laughs> like who cares? 
<gasps> no, and I, I think Twitter especially was designed to do that to people. Like the, the social psychologists that they have involved with their engineers trying to figure out how to make this technology more and more addictive. Um, and I remember reading this thing about some of the engineers who work at Twitter and who themselves have gotten quite addicted to it. And they write themselves a little program that uh, slows down Twitter by three seconds. So on their own phones, there's a three minute lag or three, I'm sorry, three second lag. It's really brief, but that three second lag is enough that they get bored and then they're not addicted to it anymore. That's hilarious. It's just three seconds is all it takes. And like your frontal lobes come back, you know, you get out of your amygdala for just that long and you're like, this is just stupid. What am I doing? I'm going to go work in the garden or like do something useful. Um, It's horrible stuff. And I just feel like it's destroying us. It's destroying all of us, our psychological, you know, our capacity to just be civil to each other, to be friendly to each other, to talk to each other. I'm not the only person who's noticed this, but I can't do Twitter. I hate it too much. I'm actually on Twitter, but I barely use it because I just find it insane. I don't even know what's going on half the time. I can't figure out who's talking to who. So I was like, I don't even know what this is. So I mostly just, I was told I had to be on Twitter. So I do go on Twitter and I'll put up things about like if I have a talk or I'm doing something like, oh, come and hear me, blah. But I don't really do much beyond that because it's just, I just find it so toxic. That's hilarious. That is really funny. I I agree with you. I don't know how to get from one post to the original post oftentimes, like practically, like this isn't worth my time. Let me go outside and hear birds tweet actually and not tweet on my phone. Yeah, I don't, I just can't figure it out. I know people who just do it like eight hours a day and that just seems crazy, but I can't figure out like where the conversations start and who is talking to who. So it's just like these random little bits. And like, I know if you could find that string, it might make sense, but the way that I'm reading it, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. No idea. So <laughs> it's not in any way appealing to me. And I'm glad because I don't want it to be appealing because yeah. I've seen people just get nuts where they're, that's all they do all day. Yep. And you can see them on there. Like clearly they've spent the last 10 hours doing nothing but getting a fight. Totally. And I just don't think that's good for anybody. Yeah, totally. That's such a good point. We went into great detail about your personal story with veganism, especially in our last episode, 287. And it's, it's a very interesting story for the listener today. Can you remind us exactly the years that you had gone vegan? And can you comment on some of the things that to this day you're still dealing with because <laughs> of that experiment into veganism? Right. So it was 1981. Is it 1980, 1981 that I became a 16. This was when I was 16. I became a vegan. And uh, yeah, I mean, most people who become either vegetarian or vegan do it because they meet somebody else as some, a personal relationship. So they meet somebody who is doing it and then they are convinced. So, you know, you get converted, you have this conversion experience Uh, And that's exactly what happened to me. So I was 16 years old and I was very impassioned, politically minded, kind of, you know, that way that teenagers can have such fervor, which is great. I mean, we need that in the world. So I was definitely one of those teenagers. Um, And I met another girl at at high school, my sister's high school, who was, or she was a vegan, her whole family were vegans. So I, you know, within a week or two, the entire thing just took um, and I didn't have any counter information. Also, this was long before the internet, obviously. So I didn't really have anything. I didn't have any arguments against it. All I knew was, you know, the little brochure she'd given me. And I will say that, you know, learning about factory farming, 
is very important. Everybody should learn about it. It is totally horrible. So I'm not, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious why that was one of the big reasons that I was, I mean, I was appalled by what I was seeing and what I was learning about it. So it's like, I'm not doing this anymore. So that was one thing. Um, and we, you know, I think everybody alive should know that factory farming is terrible. I don't even think that should be a discussion point. We just have to figure out how to stop it. So, I mean, that part was at least true, but everything else she was telling me was just, none of it turned out to be true, but I didn't know that. I had no way to know that. And all the books that I read after meeting her all said the same thing. So if you become a vegan, you're going to save the planet. You're going to save the animals. You're going to feed all the hungry people. And also it's the best thing for your health. So I didn't know better and I did it. And then, then I was stuck in it for 20 years. So yeah, I mean, I, I ended up with a whole bunch of chronic problems, some of which did get better when I started to eat a more appropriate diet, but some of them are are just permanent. It's some stuff just doesn't, you know, it doesn't get better. So uh, the main thing that's never going to get better is I ended up with degenerative disc disease in my spine. And I, that started when I was 18. So I'd been doing the vegan diet for two years. People's spines are not supposed to fall apart when you're 18. I have the spine of like a 90 year old. Um, and it's what they call idiopathic. They don't know why. Um, cause usually somebody who has this level of degeneration, you know, like the first thing the doctor says is, Oh, you were in some kind of massive car accident or you fell off a roof or you had a skydiving accident. Like, no, no, I just was a vegan, which is nutritionally pretty much the same thing. So that, and when you de degrade your joints like that, it, you don't get them back. The joints in the human body are very poorly vascularized. So once they're injured, it's pretty much a done deal. And then of course they're weight bearing. So it's just more stress on them every single day. And the biomechanics of the spine are such that that's the most um, likely place that you're going to get some kind of injury or chronic problem is between L5 S1 that 40% of your body weight lands right there. So 80% of people with back problems, that's where it is. And that's just because we decided to stand up and it maybe was not such a great idea. Um, but once that one goes, then the ones above it start to go because there's way more pressure and stress being put on the one above it since the one below it isn't doing its part. So then it just goes up your spine. So every few years, you know, another one goes. So um, at this point I have basically five of them, four or five of them that are just in very bad shape. Um, yeah. And that's permanent, but I will say that by the time I was done being a vegan 20 years later, my pain level was so horrendous that I basically never stood up unless I had to, I spent most of my time either lying on the couch or lying on my bed. Um, I couldn't do basic things like go to the movies. Like I just couldn't sit up long enough. So standing, I was like 30 second increments and then sitting up was like 20 minutes at a time, maybe 30 minutes. And then I'd have to lie down. Um, so my life was very small. I mean, it's very, it's a very constrained way to live. And I try to remember how bad that was because it is so much better now. Um, that took a few years. It, that didn't happen overnight. Some of my problems did pretty much evaporate, you know, but that one, it took like two years for me to see the difference. Um, you know, that level of inflammation is going to take time. And again, it's there, those areas of the body are really poorly vascularized. So even eating appropriate fats and whatnot, it, it just, it did take time for that to calm down. Now, it, I don't think that anything has actually built back, but the one thing you can do is, is calm that inflammation. And I definitely did that a fairly dramatic amount. So that was, I mean, that just seemed, it was a minor miracle because this disease only goes one direction and I did pull it back somewhat. So 
um, it's just a lot easier now. I can do things like ride on airplanes and ride in cars and, um, you know, I can go to the movies with my friends and I can sit through long day conference things. And none of that would have been available to me 20, you know, 25 years ago. I would have still been kind of lying down everywhere, which is a drag. You know, you go to like an event or and you have to like bring a blanket and then you have to find, you know, some edge of the room where nobody's going to step on you. And then you just got to lie down and put a little thing under your head so you can see something. But everybody looks at you like you're weird. Like, why are you lying down? It's like, yeah, I can't really help it. I'll tell you my sob story. So there's just that weird social, you know, sort of strangeness to it. Um, yeah. So that got a lot better. And my life is dramatically larger, but I mean, I can get like fentanyl if I want it. I mean, that's how bad my pain level is and my spine is for sure. Um, I hate opioids, so I don't do it. Um, but you know, it's an interesting thing for me because even on really bad days, if I ate, eat like a huge load of really good quality animal fat, it's almost as good as ibuprofen in terms of pain relief. Like it really just calms it. And like, yeah, those are your omega threes just like doing their job. And fat of course is very calming to the nervous system just on its own animal fat. So anyway, that's like the sad story. Um, Some of the other problems I got, um, I totally wrecked my, (laughs) my reproductive organs. Um, And that's a lot of that is the soy. There's two things going on there. One is that a lot of people don't know this because cholesterol has been so, villainized and demonized in our lifetimes, but it's this incredibly life-affirming substance. And one thing that it does, cholesterol is actually the, like the mother substance. It's the base from which all our hormones are built. So if you don't have enough cholesterol in your diet, you're just not going to make enough hormones. And there's lots of different hormones that we need for lots of different things. So your body has this really amazing you know, ability to kind of triage. So, you know, if you're not getting enough cholesterol and, you know, your body's reading the room here, like, oh, wow, we've hardly got any of this right now. Um, We're going to make the things that you need to stay alive. And then all the things that we can deal with later, we're just not going to make those right now. And your sex hormones, you don't need right now, right? Like clearly you're half starved, not the best time to have a baby. So we're putting that on ice. We're just going to put the pause button on that. And we're just going to keep you alive. When you get better food, you let us know. We'll think about the baby thing. But for now, we're not going to give you this. So all of which is to say, we know that women on very low fat diets, especially women who are athletes and don't have enough body fat, um, will have these problems where they stop menstruating, their fertility tanks. And all of that happened to me. It was like, I barely got a menstrual period all that whole 20 years that I was a vegan, luckily in my case, I was not actually trying to get pregnant, but I can guarantee you I never would have been able to. I mean, it just it just wasn't happening. And that one got better right away. So especially, it got better when I started, I, I, so I, I'm not gonna be a vegan anymore. I'm gonna start eating better food. I learned all this stuff about uh, traditional nutrition and like the Western price people and all of that. So I start drinking chicken broth, that helped tremendously. But then I started reading up on the soy and I was like, this is terrible because I still had some soy products in my diet. I took all those out and I'm not exaggerating here. I got my period almost immediately. And then for 25 years, I didn't miss one. It was like clockwork every 28 days until I hit menopause. That was so dramatic. I mean, I would not have predicted that. I was like, oh, it'll be a year or two. It was immediate, which tells you how much of an endocrine disruptor soy is. Like that stuff is a drug. That is not a food. 
that was crazy. But in the meantime, I, I had given myself um, uterine fibroids. So I had to have a big operation and have those removed. I did not have to have a hysterectomy though. So it could be worse. Um, but the diet pretty well cured most of it, except I did have to have the, you know, blah, blah, they took them out. So that, that was great. So I'm really glad that I did that. Um, but I know a lot of women like my sister who got endometriosis from eating soy. And in her case, it, there's no question at all. She started to get endometriosis. I mean, they are like, oh, it's such a strange thing. We don't know what causes it. Blah, blah, blah. And she also did vegan kind of long-term stuff. So that was that was bound to happen, right? So, but then she lived in Italy for a year and then other parts of Europe for almost another year after that. And they don't have soy products there the way they had them here. So just naturally, she wasn't eating any soy products because they weren't there. And the endometriosis evaporated. It just disappeared. And it was like, well, this is so strange. What is this? This is good. I mean, it's ext extremely painful condition, but it just stopped. Um, and then she came back to America started eating the soy again. And within like two months, the endometriosis came roaring back and wrecked her life. And it wasn't until I started talking to her about all like, oh, if you're still eating soy, let me tell you what I know about this from direct experience. And she was like, the horror spreads over her. Like, oh my God, that's exactly what happened. I didn't have soy. It got better. Back on the soy. Now it's here. And then she couldn't get rid of it. Like you're not going to get that miracle twice. So she did end up having to have a hysterectomy. There was just nothing they could do for her. So uh, this is where you're sort of, you know, this is where this stuff goes. Like completely, it's, I mean, I could talk for an hour just about soy and all the reasons that it's inappropriate. But the big one is the phytoestrogens. It's not good for women. It's not good for men. They look like estrogens. You guys need a little, we need a lot. But what happens is they lock onto the estrogen receptors, on, you know, in the places where you need them. And so your body thinks it has estrogen. It doesn't quite have estrogen because it's not quite an animal estrogen. So it looks enough like it that it's blocking the real estrogens that you're producing. And instead you're getting this like messed up slightly like an estrogen thing. And then your body tries to use that and it can't. So it's just a very bad idea. Um, yeah. So there was that. <laughs> um, I had sort of lower level problems. Like my skin was so dry. It hurt, especially in the winter. Like, it kept me up at night. It hurt so bad because it was so dry and achy and I couldn't move any of my limbs without it hurting. And then I'm not exactly three days of eating eggs. And I was like, I woke up one morning, day three, day four, and I could just move. All of my joints moved and my skin did not hurt. Like, wow, you can bend your arm and my elbow doesn't hurt. And I looked in the mirror and I looked completely different. Like that gray, weird, dry, like corpse-like, it just evaporated. I looked like somebody you might want to mate with. Like I had rosy cheeks and sort of, you know, plumpy skin. And I was like, I look like a totally different person. I kept running to the mirror just to look like, wow, all it was was eggs, just like enough animal fat and like a few of those nutrients. And like, you just come back to life. So my skin, that was, a, that was an overnight fix. That was a good one. And it never hurt again like that ever. Um, yeah, eggs, eggs are good. Um, I ended up, of course, the blood sugar problems. Everybody gets that when they eat any kind of high carb, low fat diet. And the vegan diet is the most extreme version of that. So, oh goodness. If you, if people out there, if you don't know about this, you really do need to understand what you're doing to yourself. So it's a really blunt instrument, insulin. And it's there. It does a lot of things that we don't really think about much because the main thing that it does is this blunt instrument thing. So let's say you eat 
your basic high carb meal. You're eating for breakfast, two pieces of toast, maybe a tiny bit of margarine because you're being good. So dry toast. I have seen people eat dry toast even still. And I feel so bad for them. Anyway, dry toast, maybe not even any. It's so sad. Like, what are you doing? All right, dry toast. Um, A glass of orange juice, just straight up sugar. Uh, And then what else might you be eating with this crazy meal? Oh, maybe like low fat yogurt. So it's still just basically sugar with a tiny bit of protein. So that's your breakfast. Oh, you're being so good today. Um, That's just a load of sugar. I mean, that's nothing there but sugar. So what happens is, You now have all the sugar that's flooded into your bloodstream and our brains can only function. And I mean, we live or we die uh, in a very narrow range of blood sugar. Too much and you can die too little and you can fall into a coma and die. And anybody who's diabetic can explain this to you. So very narrow range. You have completely busted that range with that breakfast. You've gone way above what your body would ever be able to handle. So it's an emergency and your body says, oh no, we're going to die. My poor brain flooded with sugar. This is too much. And insulin comes to the rescue. So your pancreas uh, secretes a huge load of insulin. And insulin's job at that point is to grab everything that it can get a hold of in your bloodstream, like everything, and shove it into your cells as fast as it can, just so you don't die, so your brain can be alive. So it does that. Um, But it's an overreaction because again, this is not a finely tuned instrument. It's a blunt instrument. So having grabbed everything and shoved it in for storage, eh, you can't access that stuff once there's that level of insulin. Insulin locks it tight inside your cells. Uh, but now your blood sugar is too low. So now is when you get that horrible feeling of you're shaking and you're sweating and maybe you're crying and you want to kill people and you're completely miserable. You're in a terrible, hangry. That's what you're going through. And you don't know why. I didn't know why. I just felt terrible about 12 times every day. Uh, And you have to put food in your mouth. The drive at that point to put food in your mouth is you cannot overcome it. You will put food in your mouth. Um, And that's correct because your blood sugar is now too low and you will fall into a coma. So there's no way to resist that impulse. You're going to put something else in your mouth. And that's actually a good impulse. It's like you really do need to do that at that point. So you put more food in your mouth, but because you're vegan or some kind of high carb person, all you've just done the same thing all over again. Now you've added another load of sugar. So you can pretend, oh, it's a complex carbohydrate. It's so good for me. At the end of the day, it is just sugar. Once it's in your intestines, it will be broken down into tiny little pieces instead of a long string. So that's the difference between a complex carbohydrate and just sugar. Boom, 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 boom. Your body chops it up digest it. The only way it's going to enter through through the the brush border of your intestines is when it's small. And that's what your digestive tract does. It breaks it back down. doesn't matter whether you eat it as a quote, complex carbohydrate. It is sugar by the time it hits your bloodstream. So you've eaten another load of sugar, whether it was a multigrain cracker or whether it was a piece of chocolate, it was sugar. So now you've got the same problem. Okay. For about 10 minutes, you feel better because you're in the, the good range, but you've gone up again. So now the same problem, in comes insulin, your poor pancreas is getting stressed, shoves it into the cells for you know long range storage. Now you've got too low again, now you have to eat again. And I remember by the time I was done being a vegan, I had to eat like every 20 minutes, just wow. all day long. All I did was nibble on little bits of carbohydrate and feel crazy all the time. I mean, you have the worst, you cannot keep a stable mood state when you're doing this. And I just wrecked my insulin receptors. So 
I'm low carb forever, no matter what else I eat or don't eat. I cannot ever. It's just, it's done. Some people, if you catch this soon enough, like if you only do it for two years, you can probably resensitize your insulin receptors and you might be able to eat a higher amount of carbohydrate, eat some fruit or something and feel okay. But uh, for me, that's just, that's just completely gone. So um, that is just, you know, let that be a warning to you. But if you experience any of those symptoms, like after eating what you think is a normal meal and half an hour later, you've got that postprandial blood sugar drop and you have to have dessert or you have to have a little ice cream or you have to have a sip of juice or whatever it is. Um, that's what you're doing. You are destroying your insulin receptors. And then other, some of the other problems with that, those high levels of insulin, those chronically high levels that you live with on this diet is that, I mean, it just pretty much rots everything. It's just this chronic inflammation everywhere in your body, especially things like your brain and your blood vessels uh, are going to feel the impact of this, not in a good way. Um, and then the other problem is uh, that a lot of people gain weight on these diets. And that's the reason why the insulin, the presence of insulin means that whatever you've stored in your fat cells you're never going to be able to access it. So every month that goes by, every year that goes by, you're just packing on the pounds and you don't know why. You might only be eating 1,200 calories a day and you still can't lose weight. And it's because there's so much insulin all the time. It's locking your cells shut for your protection. It's shoving everything in there, locks it shut. Uh, You can't get it back out. As long as your insulin levels are that high, you can't access that fuel. You will never be able to burn it. And this is why the low carb diets are really just produce a miracle in most people. Um, because all of a sudden you can access that fat and people find that they can lose weight really easily. And this is after, you know, decades sometimes of trying to lose weight and doing everything they're told to do. And all that happens, you know, every time they try whatever version of it, they just gain another 10 pounds or another 15 pounds. And then they get really discouraged and they're just being lied to by the, the medical profession. Yeah. Now, like there's every reason for every doctor to know about this now. This has been decades where, you know, the alternate information has been available. And I mean, going back 150 years, certainly the Victorians had already discovered all this. But, you know, people get in their little blinders and they they just can't seem to get out of it. And that that includes medical professionals. So anyway, uh, if you're still trying that kind of high carb stuff, that's what you're doing to yourself. And that's why you're having the shaky, cry, angry at everybody kind of thing, five, six, seven times a day. Um, low carb is a real quick fix for that. The first few days may be hard. I'm not going to lie about that. You may have to white knuckle it. But once you're over it, um, you have a completely different mind. You're so calm and so happy. Also, you're just never really that hungry. You never have to experience that horrible feeling. I mean, I can go all day and not eat, and I don't even really notice. I like eating. So I will eat and I know breakfast is important. So I'm like happy to eat my bacon. But I mean, I can go to four o'clock in the afternoon and like, eh, I'm a little hungry. It doesn't really, it's not like it was like, I'm actually only eating when my body wants it. It's not because my blood sugar is crashed. and I'm about to fall into a coma and I will die if I don't eat. So yeah. So for some of you, you can get your insulin receptors back and you'll have a little more kind of sway in what you eat. You'll have a, you know, a wider range for some of us it's just a done deal and it you know we killed it so <laughs> that was done so i did that um i also secondary to that i got a condition called gastroparesis which is usually mostly seen in diabetics but one of the things that happens when you've got that high insulin um what what your what your insulin does so okay so you do the high and then you've got the low but one of the the chemicals that your body releases to get it back down is adrenaline 
And that's because if you think about what adrenaline is, you know, it's the fight or flight hormone, right? If there's an emergency, you want all of that, all of the energy that's available to your body, you want it to go to your big muscles so that you can either punch your way out or run your way out. But it's like the big muscles, right? It's not the, the fine muscles, which is why when you're scared and there's, you know, you, you feel that adrenaline hit come, your voice shakes. Um, because that's a very, very, very delicate um, kind of muscles going on in there and you lose it. Um, your hands start shaking and you can't do things like write your name. Um, that's why it's because all the adrenaline is sending all the energy away from your little muscles and onto your big ones. So you lose control of those. Um, and another thing that adrenaline does is it shuts down your digestive system because if you're going to have to run your body, wants all that energy in the running muscles. It doesn't want it in the whatever it takes to digest your food. You can do that hours later. You don't need to do that now as the lion you know, approaches over the horizon. Uh, later, we will talk about digesting food. So that's why people under extreme life-threatening stress, I mean, will honestly get like a total evacuation or they'll vomit. You know that feeling, I'm going to vomit because I'm so scared. That's adrenaline emptying you out so that you can run um, and so you don't use any energy at all to digest whatever's in there. Well, you do this over and over and over again, which is what you're doing on these high carb diets. You're releasing adrenaline, not like once a week when something scary happens out on the savanna, but every single day, four, five, six times, uh, you actually will destroy your body's capacity to digest food because what your body does is it suppresses the hydrochloric acid. That's how it stops your stomach from digesting. And the problem is if you do that enough times, you will destroy your body's ability to produce hydrochloric acid. And that is called gastroparesis, where you just, your body, your, it, no food goes anywhere. Like I would eat and I would just feel sick for hours every time I ate because it just sat there in my stomach like a cannonball just sitting there. Um, and I, if I didn't eat for like a whole day or two, I would finally stop feeling nauseated. But this went on for like a decade where I felt sick just all the time. And then I found a doctor after I got out of vegan world, I found a doctor who, um, he never even saw me in person. It was over, we were in a chat group together for like traditional nutrition stuff. And I was like complaining about, uh, everybody would bring up their complaints. Like, have you heard of this one? What do you do for it? Because a lot more, about half of us were, were ex-vegetarians, recovering vegans. And this guy was like, he wrote to me privately. He's like, oh, you're the one who was that really long-term vegan. I'm like, yeah, 20 years. He's like, I know what's wrong with you. And I'm going to tell you how to fix it. It's like, I'm game. What you got? Totally free. Like he didn't know me. He was just being nice. He's like, no, 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 you, you, this is what you've got. So the cure is you just buy a supplement that's called a betaine hydrochloride and it's essentially hydrochloric acid. And I take four with every meal and two with a snack. Um, and so you're just providing what your, your body can't make anymore. And it was within 24 hours, I was a completely different person. So, and I asked him, well, how long do I have to take this? Cause this is amazing. But is my body ever going to, you know, be able to take over? And he just laughed. He's like, You're going to be friends with betaine for a long time. And I still do have to take it, but I don't have to take four with every meal. So somewhat recovered, but I think that at this point, I would say that damage is fairly permanent, but anybody who's listening, if you went down this path in any, any way, if you were vegan, vegetarian, high carb, and you're, these symptoms sound familiar, like you feel nauseated every time you eat, just try it. Try the betaine. It can't hurt you. It's an over-the-counter supplement. You know, just take four. A few, just do it for a few days. If the nausea goes away, that was your issue. Just keep taking it until you feel better, which may be a few years. It may be permanent. 
but uh, it's an easy fix. I just didn't know what was wrong. Um, and so that again is just about the insulin and then the adrenaline and then, you know, I wrecked that one. So that wasn't any good. Um, I ended up with a, a, a long string of autoimmune diseases. Um, autoimmune diseases are definitely in that cluster of conditions that are called the diseases of civilization. So we call them that because hunter-gatherers don't get them. These are not actually part of the human condition. These are things that we brought upon ourselves because we shifted from a nutrient-dense animal-based hunter-gatherer diet to a high-carb, more or less low-fat agricultural diet you know, that's mostly sugar and not much else and deficient in a million ways. We did that historically around the globe, about 14 different places around the globe, people took up agriculture and eventually it spread everywhere. Um, I think that there are still 30 to 24, is that the right number? 24 hunter-gatherer peoples around the globe that's living it. in very remote areas. Um, yeah, there's, just a, there's a few, wow. not very many. They pretty much they live in places where the agriculturalists didn't want the land. So they live, it's very remote, like mountaintops uh, above the Arctic Circle, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they are very, very susceptible to diseases. Um, you and I might get a cold and a third of their population dies if they are exposed to that virus. So honestly, they just need to be left alone because there's there's not really a good way for them to have contact with the rest of the world. And they don't want contact. They are living their lives and they are the... We just need to leave these people in peace. But anyway, um, <laughs> they don't get these diseases. And even through the 1950s, you can still find articles written in the medical literature about, well, we all know that the Inuit don't get cancer because at that point they were still eating their very traditional foods. And indeed, it, so this is noted, you know, all around the globe throughout the 18th, 19th century, you find English, French, Italian, whatever doctors uh, sort of doing the imperialism gig, but they're on, you know, big ships that are floating around ruling different empires around the globe, but they run into whatever indigenous population in the South Seas or in, you know, remote parts of the African jungle or like whatever, you name your spot. Eventually a doctor got there and was like, these people are the healthiest people on earth. They don't have cavities. Um, they don't have cancer. They don't have diabetes. Like they're amazing people. And so you start to find these articles in the medical literature where it would be like, you know, a report back from the South Sea Island and you know, the amazing things, the, the, the condition that the people were living in. Um, and so we have this, we have this phrase, the disease of civilization, and it's uh, heart disease, diabetes, and all the autoimmune conditions. So I ended up with Hashimoto's, which uh, you'll know that's a Japanese name, and it's the autoimmune disease that's the thyroid. So of course, where they eat the most soy is Japan, <laughs> where they also have a great deal of thyroid problems. Um Yes, so soy is very, very hard on the thyroid. Um, so I got Hashimoto's and then I got, um, I had a little bit of psoriasis. Mine was never that bad, but I ended up with psoriatic arthritis. And then um, who knows how much worse that's going to get. Uh, autoimmune stuff is very strange. It is, they, they kind of have a, a, has a life of its own. When I went gluten-free, that made a huge difference in my Hashimoto's. So gluten is always implicated with, with autoimmune stuff. So if you have any autoimmune conditions, even if they run in your family, the number one thing you can do is just take the gluten out. It will, will likely make at least a dent in whatever you're going through. And in some cases, it can completely cure it. So uh, that's like, you know, the, the base, the number one thing you can do. Uh, soy would be number two, especially for thyroid stuff. 
Um, so for the psoriatic arthritis, I ended up, it's been over a year now, a year and a bunch of months, I decided to try the carnivore diet. And um, it's pretty much cured my psoriatic arthritis. So yeah, I, I just did everything. Yeah. And I've been, I started, I think it was last February. So this is April. So it's been, yeah, a year and a bunch of months. I did not get an overnight cure. There are definitely people who a week in are like, it's gone. I'm like, well, that's amazing. But I, it took me a few months, a good three months till I saw a difference. So it's worth doing. You know, if you have these kinds of issues, these kinds of problems, my only option at that point was to go on one of the biologics. I'd already been through um, the kind of gentler medications and they had stopped working one by one or I couldn't tolerate them. So I was looking at like one of the big ones. I was like, I don't really want to do that. And I thought, well, you know, I'd bumped into all the carnivore people, certainly enough that I knew about it. And then of course, Michaela Peterson is our sort of our poster child. Um, and I thought, well, why not? It can't do him any harm. It's not that far from what I'm eating anyway. So I did. And I took out all the vegetables and I took out the dairy. That was hard. Cause I do like my, I like my tea in the morning with a little bit of very good quality dairy. Um, but for three months, I didn't eat any of that. Just none of it. I didn't even eat butter just, and I did it. And it really, it, really helped. And now, um, having done it and I did introduce a couple more things back in and I, it seems to go well, but not plants, just other kinds of animal products, like a little bit of milk or a little bit of cream. That's fine. Um, but I do know that if I decide that I'm going to have some chocolate, uh, it will come back. So <laughs> anything that blows, like makes the insulin a little bit too high. And I know chocolate also has its own problems in terms of oxalates. I will feel it. So that's a very direct pipeline to a few days of misery. Um, but I love chocolate. I'm not going to lie. I find it incredibly addictive. So I never keep chocolate in my house. So I got that. I got all those autoimmune things. And then I was able to more or less push them back by using different dietary interventions. Um, what was that? What else did I get? Uh, well, there's all the things that you could, you could predict, like the exhaustion, the um, depression, anxiety, all that kind of mental psychological stuff is that's sort of overdetermined because number one, you need good quality fat for your brain to just be a brain. It's 80% fat. So you can't really rebuild your brain. You know, every day you've got tissues that are degrading and they need to be broken down and then you have to rebuild them. And that's what your body does to keep you alive. So your body, I mean, your brain is 80% fat. If you're not eating fat. You just can't rebuild it. And what happens is, is I mean, this is a noted phenomenon. It's in the literature that people who eat, especially vegan diets, but vegetarian diets, their brains shrink after five years. Uh, there is a, a noted shrink in, in your, your matter, your brain matter. I was like, this is an organ that's like two and a half million years in the making. And all you have to do is not feed it properly and it will shrink. Wow. You will lose five, five percent. It will shrink. Like it's just horrifying. Okay. And then you have the, you know, your neurotransmitters are made out of particular proteins. So we all know about serotonin. That's tryptophan is the amino acid you have to eat to have serotonin. And then um, the little docking stations for it are, are made out of fat. And then the, the synapses um, that, as well, you know, you have to have some fat. I mean, we are essentially a set of electrical impulses inside a watery environment. We have nerves, right, inside our bodies, which are like whatever percent moisture, like 90 whatever percent, right? How does that work? I mean, you can't, you know, if like a telephone line, if you, you know, 
a line falls in a puddle. Like, this is not a good idea. Well, it works because of this thing called myelinization, which is every last one of your nerves is actually coated in fat because, of course, you know, oil and water don't mix. We know this. But just like a wire is insulated, you would not have just a bare wire, you know, like running from your computer to your plug socket. Like, you would never do that. You, everybody knows better. It has to be insulated. Um, and so that's how your body does it, is it uses fat. So when you're not giving your body enough fat, your nerves just start falling to pieces um, and they're just not going to work right. So you're going to have these like these people who have things like, oh, I want a fibromyalgia or other sorts of conditions that aren't mm, particularly well understood by the medical profession. Like these people are clearly suffering. It's something very inflammatory. Um, you know, they tend to be people who have a hard time staying calm emotionally as well. They cry a lot. Everything is just like too much. You know, you just if they have a they have to be in like dark rooms a lot just by themselves because everything just overwhelms them, and that's why it's like their nerves are literally exposed. Like that's the, and it's because they're not eating enough fat. And I've just seen this so many times, just anecdotally. Like you beg your friend, please just eat some, please just eat some fat, just eat some butter. I'm like, oh, I love butter, but I don't let myself eat it. Please just eat some butter and some high fat cheese just for one week. Just do the experiment. And they're like, I was a different person. I, I know you were. I know. I get how bad you felt and you feel so much better. So now I'm going to give you a huge stack of books to read. You don't even have to read mine. Read these books and then just try it for a few months and you're going to be a transformed person, your personality especially. You're going to feel so calm and so happy and you're not going to be crying anymore. And all that inflammation and all that pain in your body that nobody could understand is going to go away because you're going to be calm on the inside and the out. So um, yeah, all of that, all of that stuff that goes on because you're just depressed and anxious and all of that, that goes away almost overnight if you're eating some animal protein and some animal fat. That then that was an amazing thing to experience was just that that's night and day. That's like the world comes back to life. Living color, like sometimes within a few hours, you'll feel that much better from it. So um did, I don't think I forgot anything. I think there's everything that went wrong and then things it's, that I was able to get right. <laughs> it's bananas. And to think that all of that suffering did nothing. It didn't do anything. It didn't help your health. It didn't help the planet. It didn't help a single thing that's wrong on this planet. I didn't save animals. I didn't save the soil. I didn't save the rivers. I didn't save the trees. I didn't feed a single hungry person. None of it was true. So I wrecked it and I'm not getting it back. And I didn't even save anybody for it. It's not even like, well, it was worth it because, you know, 2000 animals weren't blown. It's just, none of it's true. So well, okay. Yeah. So it, it's occurred to me recently that when I think about a plant-based diet, a vegetarian diet, a vegan diet, I think of that diet as what I would see at a magazine at a plant-based grocery store. Beautiful plated food, lots of green. Could be a big salad with red peppers and carrots sliced up in this contrast of colors. Yet that doesn't turn out to be what the actual vegan diet is it's not that it it looks like that and it's marketed like that and maybe things would go better if it were that i don't think they would but tell us about what a real true vegan diet actually looks like well i would divide vegans into into half into half in half you've got the vegans who are trying like me to eat a super healthy whole grain whatever so you know my diet was brown rice and kidney beans and black beans 
and oh, udon noodles, like lots of you know whole grain pasta, uh, tofu of course, lots of tofu, um, almond butter, peanut butter, lots of whole grain bread, and then I made a lot of things too. So it would be like, oh, I don't know, vegan cornbread or vegan bones or something you know, like little baked goods. The thing is, it's always going to be heavy on the carbs. And you you just are a carb addict, whether you intended to be or not, because of that blood sugar thing. So you're just constantly having to put more car- carbohydrate into your mouth. So whether it's white flour or, you know, beautiful whole grain, whatever flour, it's that's what you're craving. So I, when I was a vegan, I never ate white sugar and I never ate white flour. I was really, really strict. I wouldn't eat white rice. I was really strict about it. It only has to be whole grain, whatever. And I can guarantee you, like, it's just a fact. I destroyed my insulin receptors anyway. It didn't make any difference, but I thought it was better. So I was doing all of that. So you have those people like me who are really trying to have this be the healthiest that they can be. So they, you know, you're trying that and you have some vegetables and I never liked fruit. So fruit, I don't care, but you know, they'll eat fruit, whatever. So all of that. Um, so that's like the healthy ones. And then you've got the ones who are like, oh, I have to do this. It's the right thing to do. Uh, I don't really want to cook though, because it's too much work and I don't actually like cooking. So as long as it's called vegan, I'm going to eat it. And these are like potato chip vegans. So they eat Oreo cookies and they eat potato chips and they eat a lot of sugary junk for the most part. And as long as there's no butter in it, they're fine with it. And they just fall apart. I mean, I, that is just, it's just junk. I mean, it's just potato chips and Coca-Cola essentially. So those, I feel very bad for those people. I, there's just no way. If, you, if you're not going to cook, you really can't do that diet. There isn't any way. I mean, I guess if you had a lot of money, you could buy a ton of takeout food if you could go to the right restaurant. But I just, it just doesn't seem feasible. It's like, it's just too hard. I guess if you lived in New York and you knew where all the vegan restaurants were yeah. or some really groovy place, maybe in California. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't see it's feasible. If you don't, if you're not going to cook, I don't see how you can do it. So you've got the junk food vegans and then you have the more like the whole grain vegans, I guess I'd call them. Um, but nobody's like, and I did eat salad pretty much every day, but nobody's living on that. I mean, that's like 80 calories, no matter how much ever you eat, it's really just water, yeah. uh, or some dressing. And, and if you're eating vegan, the dressing is going to be pretty grim. So, uh, yeah, there's really not, that's, it's just not a good idea. That's, that's what people are pitched though. And that's what people think. And so they can't imagine when I'm telling somebody like, like the actual numbers with sustainability, say with, with raising cattle in this country and the the numbers you hear about methane and all that stuff. When I'm explaining to somebody that there's a deep distrust in, in the things I'm trying to educate on, because they think for sure, big, you know, big cattle or big dairy are the ones putting out these messages when it's like, no, if you go plant-based, you are still very much, very much putting your money in the hands of people in the processed food industry. But you don't, you don't assume that you just think I'm, I'm feeding my local spinach grower. <laughs> we don't even have one. Like, <laughs> I mean, you can try, like I've grown a lot of my own food. I had lots of gardens in my life. I've supported a lot of community, supported like the CSA people and you, you know, you buy in and then they bring you the big bags of veggies and all that. But I mean, you can't live on salad. You're not a cow. You're not going to do that. Like you're going to have to eat something else at the end of the day. It's, there's just not enough calories in it. There's not enough energy for a human being to live on that. Like I just, there's nothing in it, but water really it's, there's not much to it. So that's like the joke about Chinese food. Oh, you're always hungry, you know, 20 minutes later. It's yeah, it's because it's all vegetables. So 
it just doesn't stick to your ribs. And then you're hungry. And then you're hungrier still. And then you're starving. I mean, it just it doesn't last. So yeah. And then they they don't the thing that I did not understand as a vegan that was really kind of the hard, the hard realizations was just the nature of agriculture and how much that's the problem. That's like, oh, people are destroying the earth. Look how bad humans are. All right, fine, but how are we doing it? That was always my question. Like, how did why did we do this? Like, where's the where's the cutoff point? Like, when, were we good ever? Were we always doing bad things? So then, you know, it's like all this reading and trying to figure out the history of the human race, but the monster and destroyer part. Like, when did that? Why did we start hurting our planet? That seems so crazy. And you know, the answer is yeah, it's called agriculture um, because that's what it is. It's like literally clearing all the life off the land. And then just using it for humans. So it's mass extinction. Um, there's no way to do it sustainably. It's You can't. You're destroying the soil every time you do that. So that's when the destruction starts. And it moves very quickly across the globe. The moment somebody starts doing it, you have to take over your neighbor's land because you've destroyed yours. So now you've got imperialism and genocide. You have to have a military. Um, and this is it. This is this tremendous kind of downward spiral that we've been on now for 10,000 years. We've taken all the land that could be taken. There's nothing left, right? 98% of the old growth forests and 99% of the world's prairies are gone. And the reason they're gone is because we decided we wanted to eat wheat. So that's what did it. It's This is how the annual grass, grasses got the humans on their side to conquer the forests and the perennial grasses was by getting us addicted to grain. And then, you know, our whole way of life revolves around it. Um, and then every time that we build a little city and we were relying on the countryside and we use up all that soil, now we need an army, go out and conquer the next valley, take all their stuff. Oops, that collapsed. All right, take the next valley. Or you'll see like around the Mediterranean, you know, there's just empire after empire after empire after empire. As this one collapses, the next one starts, this one collapses, the next one starts, just goes around the entire Mediterranean. And when you think of things like Italy or Northern Africa, that is not what that land once looked like. You know, it was cedar forests so thick that sunlight never touched the ground. And all that's left is sort of scraggly brush and exposed rock. That's not what Italy is supposed to look like. It is what it looks like after, you know, a few thousand years of doing agriculture. Same with Northern Africa, but that's all entirely man-made desert through there. Um, that used to be the Roman Empire. Yeah. And they just took it all. There's nothing left. So... That's the problem. And as a vegan, I couldn't face that because I had decided at age 16 that, you know, the, the foods of agriculture were the ones that were peaceful and kind and good for animals and going to feed the world. And isn't this great stuff? And I, they, there's no way this could be wrong. But then all my own experiments, growing my own food, as well as everything that I was researching, I just kept coming to the same hitting that same ideological wall of like, no, the problem is agriculture. This is when the real horrors begin the human race against the planet, the human race against other humans. This is the horror. This is when we become the monsters and destroyers. But I couldn't face that as a vegan. So that was one of the re relief points for me coming out of being a vegan was, all right, here's all these books I've read. Here's all this information that I've gathered. And I am finally now ready to actually engage with it and to say, okay, if this is true, what does it mean? Is it true? It does look like it's true. I can finally face it. This is true <laughs> uh, because I'm ready to just set aside the grain and say, maybe that wasn't the best thing. Uh, not actually the foods of peace and justice and love and, you know, 
gentle animals and all of that. Like it just, that's not what it was. It's in fact, biotic cleansing. Mm. So they need to understand that because um, one thing I, that I always try to say to the vegans is like, you have the right values. You know, the th- what is motivating you, you it, what's deep in your heart that motivates your life is exactly correct. You know, you love the animals, you want justice, you want peace, you want the, the planet to be protected and cosseted and, you know, and you want all the bad things to stop. I get it. Like I do too. You, you really, you want that so badly that you're willing to have starve yourselves. Um, it's just the information that you have isn't the full information. All you have is factory farming. You don't understand that it's way bigger than factory farming. It really is agriculture. It's the, you know, the basis of civilization itself is the problem. And when you can wrap your minds around that, you're going to make different choices. So, you know, it's just, if, if, if you're so ideologically bound that you're not able to listen to a conversation about this or participate, um, that's a problem. You know, like we're supposed to keep flexible, flexible brains throughout our lives. That's really what being a grown up is, is you're supposed to be able to change your mind. Um, and keep engaging with other grownups so that we can decide as a group what's the best thing to do. Um, and that's called democracy. And it's a really good thing. And I'm glad that people figured that out. Like we all should have a voice, but it means we have to be able to talk to each other. And if you're at a point in your life where you're terrified to listen to somebody, where it makes you so angry that you can't listen to somebody, there's something wrong with that. Right. And you need to calm that down and try to find some way to open it back up a little bit just take in like two or three sentences of what I've said and wrestle with it. Go ahead. Let yourself think it over. Turn it over in your mind for a few days. Could it be true? What if it's true? Will I die if it's true? You won't die. It's just information. I promise. I know it feels incredibly threatening sometimes, but you, you don't have to feel that bad about it. It is just information. And it's worth engaging because if I'm wrong, well, then I'm wrong and that's fine. And you can write me a note about how I'm wrong. You can write your own book about how I'm wrong. Um, I'm always open to information. So if you can find stuff that tells me that this is all wrong and I've got it completely wrong, I am more than happy to, to listen to that because I'd love to be wrong because this is bad. I mean, what's happening on the planet is really bad. Um, it would be easy if it was just factory farming that I can see an end to, but we've really backed ourselves into a corner here. It's like 85% of the calories that every human being eats now it comes directly from agriculture. There's way too many of us. Like we really have to back our way out of this one slowly and all the institutions are headed in the wrong direction. So it's grim. It's not that there aren't solutions. It's just that I don't know how to get them from here to there. Um, as quick as we need yeah, it now. So, what's that? As quick as we need it now. I know we're out of time. We've not even got a decade left at this point. So like we need everybody on board. And so I really want the passion of the vegans and the animal rights people on board because they have the right passion for this. They really do. And I, nothing but admiration for people with that level of um, commitment. You know, it's hard. It's hard to be a vegan in this world. So, you know, you're most of the way there. It's just, there's just a point past which you've stopped absorbing the new information. And so I'm just begging you to engage with this because we really need you on the right side. Yeah, I love that. I love that. No, and look, you were, you were exactly that same way. You were learning about this, but you didn't immediately stop being a vegan because of your motive. You loved animals. If anybody on this planet loves animals. It is you. You love them to such a degree that you would suffer. You would rescue snails from, from your garden. <laughs> My favorite story ever. You, you, you understood that, but, but you make such a great point in your book that if you want to do that, you have to 
choose where is your line on what is a sentient creature on this planet and what has no feelings. Some people, they're okay with choosing a cow as something that that they would never harm, but they're okay if a hundred deer get killed in a combine or a thousand gophers, or maybe it's just the bacteria. Or what about the plants? Like I watched this amazing, beautiful video yesterday of tomato plants getting cut and the way they're measuring how they send sound information to other plants that's different depending on what's going on, whether they're a little dry, dehydrated, whether they're getting cut. It's gorgeous. And if you could, if you can accept the fact that this is a cycle, the way you say it in the book, I love thinking about it this way. It's not a line. It's a circle. Can we, can we include all of this and appreciate all of it and understand that we are a part of that cycle too? Yeah, because I was drawing a line. And even as a vegan, I was not comfortable drawing that line. I was like, well, animals count. All the animals count. Um, insects, they're animals, but I couldn't really engage with it because even I knew that insects had to be being killed for my food. So I was like, well, I'm just going to put insects aside. I'm not really going to think about it. I did that a lot as a vegan. I'm just not going to think about it. Uh, but I did draw, I was drawing a line between animals count, they're sentient, uh, they deserve moral standing, plants don't. But I hated it because I've had conversations with trees, you know, and I can see the beauty of plants. And the more that you find out about how plants are sentient and do communicate, and they live in communities and they help each other. Um, like where I live in the redwoods, there are albino redwood trees, which is fascinating. You know, it's a slight genetic problem. You know, it's a, a discrepancy and they they can't make, it's actually with, the thing that they're missing is because they're not green, they're this sort of gray color. They can't actually make chlorophyll, which is what you need to photosynthesize. You said albino. So they, wow. They're albino. They're wow. albino trees. Yeah. And they, you can Google it. You can see what they look like. They're very short. The reason is because they literally cannot produce their own energy, which of course is what plants do. That's what they're photosynthesizing out there in the sunshine. They can't do it. So how do they exist at all? Well, they exist at all because um, their mothers and sisters and family members that are all around them keep them alive. They, all the plants and the world are hooked up to this mitochondrial network. Um, so their roots into the soil and they can communicate and they're constantly sending chemical messages back and forth to each other. And this is how they create communities and this is how they help each other. And this is the best example that I have because these trees, they won't grow to be 200 feet tall, but they will grow to be 80 feet tall. And they're only alive because their relatives standing around them send them nutrients in their roots. So all the other trees in the forest are like, oh, this is one of ours. And uh, this tree will starve and needs help and is hungry. So here, have some energy. And so they send everything that 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 tree needs through the mitochondrial network, through the roots to the tree that cannot produce her own energy. And that's why there are albino trees that live. Um, and so that's just one example, but you know, it may be, oh, we're being attacked by um, aphids over here. And then all the other plants are like, we will help. And they will send all kinds of insecticides that they can make will be sent through the mitochondrial network to the plant that's being attacked. And then that plant can hopefully fight up some aphids. Or um, if a deer is walking by in the forest and brushes up against a bush, a shrub, uh, and then the branch breaks. So this is an injury. And then the plant will tell the others, okay, there's a large animal coming through headed your way. I think be careful, get ready. And all the plants in the nearby area will stiffen themselves. They'll send out chemicals that make them temporarily stiffer to withstand, you know, a herd of deer coming through. So they, they talk to each other and they help each other and they make a community just like animals do. They don't have faces. That's the only way they're not like us. They don't have faces that you can look at and go, Oh, that's really cute. 
Um, but they're just as alive and just as sentient as we are. I had a very hard time with that as a vegan. I could never make peace with it. Because of course there's those people who are like, oh, do you think cows are the same as people? And I'd be like, no, they're not the same, but they still deserve to have their lives. But then it was like, oh, well, but what about a sunflower? I was like, well, I don't know. I, I'm going to eat one. Like I just, <laughs> I didn't have an argument. It's like, I got to eat something. Uh, I never could find a way because I was drawing a line. I just was putting it slightly further down than the meat eaters. So it was such a relief finally to like figure this all out in my head and think there's no line. We're all just taking turns. I'm going to die. Somebody's going to eat me. And every last molecule of this, all the carbon in here is just going to get taken up. There's grass going to eat it. Trees going to eat it. There's animals going to eat it. I'll be in the baby bird. I'll be in the mother fox. I'll be in the redwood. I, it just gets recycled. So I don't know. Is there something that moves on that's like a spirit or a, a, who knows? None of us know. But it, if so, then that's great. But if not, I mean, every molecule is going to live on and we'll just keep getting recycled. And so, you know, all of us will live on in that way. We'll just be part of the cycle. So really our goal here, the one job that we have is to make that cycle stronger. Are we making the circle better or are we degrading the circle? And if you're eating agricultural foods, I'm sorry, but that is the death that's killing everything. That is not the death that's making the circle stronger. Very beautifully explained. When we started this conversation off air, I said, wow, like it looks like you have not aged in a day. I, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have said that because I should have just gone with, oh, you're eating carnivore. I had no idea you were eating carnivore for over a year. But in this world of people doing carnivore diets, it, it, everybody just reverse ages. We get chronologically yeah. older, but you like feel better and better and your oh, skin yeah. glows, your countenance gets better. Like what were, yeah, some, what, so were, true. what were some of the things that surprised you a few weeks into like trying a carnivore diet? Um, you know, even eating low carb, there was still a difference when I started doing carnivore, the calm in my brain was something that I still had never experienced. Um, and I think that there are ways I've watched a lot of videos about, um, plants are trying to kill you. So all the things that I sort of knew, like the bad stuff about plants, but when they really lay it all out, um, it really is chemical warfare. Uh, and taking out all of the all of those toxins, all of the lectins, all the ways that plants mess with us because they don't want to be eaten. And I don't even know which kind of problem it was. All I can tell you is that just eating carnivore, maybe two, three weeks in, there was just a level of calm that I, just emotional calm that was like, I felt so whole. I don't have any other words to describe it, but it is like nothing I've ever experienced. And this is honestly after you know a decade or two of doing the low carb thing really hardcore. Um, just try it, everybody, is all I can say. You might not get that, but I did. And it was just this really solid sense of um, everything is good. Yeah. Just really good. Like the, the little spiky edges of anxiety were just completely smoothed out. Um, and I think it's just those plants just poking you with those poisons. <laughs> It's just not there anymore. Like the little spiky things running around your bloodstream are just gone. That was mine. That was mine. You had that too? Same, exact. Two weeks afterwards, things that were stressful were not that stressful. And like a robin on the tree is like, 
beautiful. Like my cat is so wonderful to be around. Like, so I, I, I think about your example in the book, like you describe being vegan, lose your keys. You're a puddle in the floor crying. You, like you just, oh yeah, I, I don't know where my keys are, but, but you have the steadiness oh, well. <laughs> to think about like some options. What can I do that? I don't have my keys. I could look over there or I could go on a walk or you, you're just, nothing really seems to bother you that much anymore. It's really magical. Yeah. You can handle it. It's all good. It's you're alive. It's good. Everything's good. I, yeah. So that was the one big thing. The rest of it was, it took more time, but that was the, the big one. It was just like that sense of just really solid solid sense of calm that I have never had before. Um, so I, I highly recommend it. And I, you know, then of course not having pain in my fingers was pretty good. That's pretty great. Um, yeah, I would definitely, especially autoimmune people, you know, watch Michaela Peterson. She's our queen. Um, and then just try it. Like it, it's the same thing when I, all of these things that I've tried, it's not going to hurt you for a month or two. Yep. That's if right. it doesn't help, whatever, you can put your salad back in. Who cares? Yep. Um, there's nothing in plants that you need all nutrients are available in animal products yep. it's just a fact so you're there's not going to be any deprivation you're not going to run any deficit you're not going to get a a salad deficit if you don't eat salad for you know eight weeks or something but um you can't say the same for animal products there are things that we absolutely have to have that are only available in animal products uh you will run a deficit if you take those out but um yeah just try it i think carnivore is really cool and i'm just going to keep doing it because it's working and awesome. who knows it's not like I didn't make it into an identity, so I don't really care if I stop doing it, which is a much healthier attitude to have. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll find something else that I need for some reason, and I'll try that. But um, I'm I'm feeling pretty good about it, and I'm just going to keep doing it. Cool. So that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I did my 30 day experiment and forgot to get off it as well. It's been four years, so yeah, so like, cool. Well, Congratulations yeah. to you to be able to find it and be able to try something new that is exactly the opposite. And you know, I I would still think to this day there would be some kind of dissonance or some kind of difficult thing for you to you know think about as you're you're eating animal foods. But you just the way you present your ideas and explain some of the things in your book and in this conversation has just been so wonderful. And I really hope it gets out there to help a lot of people. So Lyra Key, thank you so, so very much for stopping by again to have a conversation with us. We just love you and your energy and even more calmness. Now that you're on carnivore, super cool. <laughs> uh, where would you like people to go to find you to connect with you and your work? Um, they can go to my website, which is, um, it's just my name.com, Lyrakeith.com. That's kind of a joke though. Cause I have a really strange name and you won't know how to spell it. So it's L I E R R E. K-E-I-T-H. The easiest way, though, if you're just listening to this, like in your car or something, and you're not going to write it down, just look up my book, Vegetarian Myth. There's only one book with that title, and I'm the only person who wrote it. So if you type that in, you will find my website in two or three clicks. Vegetarian Myth is me. It's just riveting. The book, I'm reading it, I'm listening again this week in preparation for this conversation. It's so good. It's so engaging. It's been four times, five times that I've heard it. Like it's a lot of times and it's still very, very good. I just, I I, I told you last time, I still remember where I was driving in the car, listening to it the first time, having my mind blown with some of this stuff, but it was that impactful. And so I really appreciate it. I I know it's not a new book. You've written it a while ago, but it's still very well done. And the way you lace together the facts and present your own personal stories and bring those two things together. It's just, it's wonderful. It's a fantastic book and so grateful for it and so grateful for you. Like I said, thank you so very much for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Well, thanks for all your work, Casey. I appreciate it. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio.
Thank you, as always, so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. We really have such a passion for this work and for sharing our message. I've always said this, and I still believe it, that if I were to win the lottery today, that I would still show up for all of my clients and continue this work starting at 6 a.m. next Monday. It's just really a joy to be able to work with people and share our message and to be able to share this message with people all over the world, be able to interview all kinds of different doctors and researchers or just everyday people to share their stories and literally inspire hundreds of thousands of listeners to our show. Last year, we decided to start our Patreon page to be able to share premium content for a subscription fee, which included private coaching, early releases of our podcast, which was unedited, and also my special project of making the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast, which is basically the highlights of all of the hundreds of episodes that we have done, all condensed down into a masterclass of a particular topic, including different macronutrients and also ketogenic diets. The subscription model uh, really wasn't exactly a smash success, to say the least, but I did put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into those episodes, and I'm really just not that comfortable with them sitting around behind a paywall when they could be out helping people. So we have decided to terminate our Patreon page. I will be releasing all of the content that we created for the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast on our normal show, Boundless Body Radio, for free. So be on the lookout for that in the coming months. And be sure to leave any feedback that you might have. If you enjoy them, we'd really love to hear from you. They were really fun to make, and I really enjoyed reviewing all of our content to create them. But like I said, if they're not out there helping people, I'm just not really okay with that, and I really want them to get out and help. So remember that you can always book a free complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. We've really enjoyed connecting with people all over the world to discuss all things health and fitness. And so feel free to do that and take advantage of that. And as always, thank you again so much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.